Well, I recognize that uh, there are some of you who maybe are new to Mercy Hill and you haven't been with us through our whole study of 2 Samuel. So let me just try to kind of catch you up to speed just a little bit. Back in chapter 15, uh, we saw a son, a young man by the name of Absalom, who rebelled against his father and he treated him horribly. His father was David. He was the king of Israel. In the second half of chapter um, 15, we see David's response to that rebellion. And the chapter really ends with David fleeing from his life, from his son, son trying to pursue him, trying to kill him. And then we get to chapter 16, where we are today. And in chapter 16, we just see a continuation of the mistreatment of David, only this time by three new people. Three new individuals begin to mistreat him. Uh, Their names were Ziba, Shimei, and Ahithophel. If you are looking for a name to name your son, these may not be them. It might be a little bit difficult to remember, um, but there you go. And so what we find here is these men are mistreating him in different ways. For example, the very first story is about Ziba, and he mistreats David by trying to manipulate him, which he does. But we're not going to focus on that story today because just a couple of weeks ago, David or, or Ryan did a phenomenal job of actually preaching on that sub- subject of manipulation, and he told us exactly how to do it and do it well. That's, no, it's not really what the sermon was about, but if if you want to know about the devastating effects of manipulation, just go to two or three weeks ago to, and listen to David's, uh, uh, why do I keep calling him David, Ryan's sermon. And so the very last now section, the very last story in here is by Ahithophel, and really we're not going to cover it either because it really, really just works as an as a introduction to the events that unfold in chapter 17. So we'll look at it next week. So that leaves us just with one short story this morning, the, the story of Shem- Now, that's incredible because up to this point, we haven't read one short story in the whole book. It's been really, really long chapters. This is one of the shortest, and it comes at a good time because we have the Lord's Supper. So we really felt we're going to have enough time to get everything done, but Nick started four minutes late, so it's his fault if we get out late. So just wanted to throw that in there just really quickly. Uh, So here's what we want to do in this particular story. um, What we're going to do is we're going to look at the story. Uh, And and it's not one of the stories that you really are very familiar with. This isn't like Jesus stilling the storm or or David and Goliath. This is a story that you may may never even have heard before. So I want to make sure we get the story done right. And then after explaining it, I want to go ahead and just draw a couple principles for us that I think is going to help us as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper this morning. So let's look at the story. We actually pick up in verse 5, if you will. Follow along, if you will. The Bible says, when King David came to... Bahurim, there came out a man of the, family, uh, of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. Now, this was a man who was related in somehow, some way to King Saul, and he has a cursing problem. Now, this doesn't mean that he had a potty mouth. This doesn't mean that, that uh, he needed to wash his mouth out with soap. This is, just simp- this is a completely different type of cursing. When he comes on the scene, he is publicly speaking horrible things publicly that he wants to be done to David. Think more in terms of may, your milk, may the milk from your mother's goat never curdle, or may you eat nothing but raw vegetables for the rest of your life. I mean, terrible things he was calling on King David. And so he's going about, he's calling out all of these curses, and in the midst of all of this, we see that 
he also realizes that really throwing out insults is not enough, that truly names will never truly hurt David. So he decides to pick up some stones, and he begins to throw them as David begins to walk along this highway. He just begins to pelt them with stones. Now, the significance is, is at least twofold. It's not simply to be able to demean David, suggesting that David is nothing more than a worthless street dog that needs to be shooed away. Instead, there's something very symbolic that's going on here that the, that the audience that was living this out would have understood. See, in the Torah, in the Old Testament law, there were specific laws that were viewed as being uh, so terrible and egregious before God that God had actually commanded that whoever would commit these particular sins would be put to death by stoning. Just a couple examples. We look in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 2. The Bible says there that if somebody were to worship the false god Moloch, they were to be stoned and put to death. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 10, we're told that if anybody were to lead people away from worship of the true God and lead them into idol worship, they too were to be uh, placed to, put to death by stoning. And so here what, Sh- what Shimei is doing is he doesn't have the authority nor the power to be able to stone David. But by kind of symbolically throwing these pebbles at him, being an annoyance, he was letting everybody know there that David was actually guilty of an egregious enough sin that he is worthy of death by God and by stoning. And so this is what he's doing all along the way. And in in verse 7, he begins to lay out this case with David of why he believes he's guilty. Follow along, if you will. He says, And Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged, the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your own son. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Lots of stuff going on here. Let's take just a moment just to unpack it for a minute. When, when, when he says to David that he's a man of blood, he's recognizing that David is indeed a murderer. When he says to him that he is a worthless man, he's saying that he is a man of low moral character. In other words, he's a sinner. And, and he gets it right. This, David is both those things in which he said. He is a murderer and he is a sinner. He murdered uh, Uriah the Hittite. He, he is a sinner not only because he murdered, but because he had committed adultery. So he's right in his accusations against David. And not only that, he also gets it right that the reason for his suffering and all the difficulty that's come upon him is self-caused by David. This is the consequence by his own sin. So he gets those things right, but he gets one thing wrong. And we read it in verse 8. He presumes to know what sin he's suffering for. Notice verse 8. He says, The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, there were many people who loved David, but there were also some who did not love David at all. And that was usually those from the house of Saul. And the reason for that is because they nev- no longer reigned. They never had the, the, the privilege of being a part of, of that kingly line and that kingly dynasty. So everything they believe had been stripped away. And to that day, they still believe that David had something to do with Saul's death and the death of his children. He believed that he was responsible for that death. And so what he's saying now is, hey, God is acting vengeance. God knows what you did. You couldn't get away from the sin. And so in order to be able to deal with you and your sin for taking away a throne that was not rightfully yours, now God's going to take away your throne and give it to Absalom. 
Well, of course, we know that he's wrong in all of this. David didn't kill Saul. If you go back and you read the story, he didn't kill Saul. He didn't kill his sons. In fact, he wasn't even there on that day. We, we read in the Word of God that he was actually sent out. He had, he had gone to the Philistines to be protected by them from Saul. But when they went to battle to each other, the Philistines said, we don't want David on our team. In the midst of the battle, he's going to turn on us and fight for Saul and against us. Send him away. So on the day of the battle that Saul died and his sons died, David was nowhere to be seen anywhere. And so in part of what he says is right, part of what he says is absolutely wrong. Well, so, so picture everything that's going on. David and these men are fleeing from the city, from Jerusalem, afraid that Absalom's going to come and wipe them out. And as they're going, there's this little guy on the side of the road that keeps throwing stones and throwing insults the whole time that they're walking along. Well, you can imagine that somebody's not going to like this. And so we find out that there's a man by the name of Abishai, who is actually the, the nephew of David, who actually speaks out. He says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Now, when I was growing up as a teenager on the, uh, on the playground or on the ball field, I would use language like that. I would sit there and go, and don't look all spiritual at me. You did too. I would sit there and go, bro, if I have to come over there, I'm going to take your head off. But I got to be honest with you, I never truly meant it. I didn't really want to actually take someone's head off. It's just a way to say, you're in trouble if you mess with us. And this guy literally wanted to take his head off. He has a long-standing relationship with the Philistines wanting to do so. In fact, back in 1 Samuel chapter 26, we read of a time when David wanted to enter into, um, into the camp of Saul. He's camping out under the stars trying to get David, and David wants to sneak into the camp. And he says, anybody want to go with me? Well, Abishai, his nephew, goes, I'll go with you. So and under the cover of darkness, they sneak in. They go undetected. Everybody is sleeping. Saul is sitting there. They're right up on him. And Abishai says, now please, says this to David, now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. This is a bad dude. In fact, if I ever get a pit bull, I'm going to name him Abishai. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, just so that you know, I'm going to warn everybody. I'm going to put a sign out in front and said, this, beware of Abishai. He won't strike twice. All right? That's what I'm going to do. But that was my plan. But then I realized that a robber is probably not going to know the word of God and probably not going to know who Abishai is. And so I decided not to get a pit bull. Uh, so, so this is who he is. He comes out. He's ready to strike. And I don't know about you, but I can identify with Abishai. This is how I would want to respond to somebody throwing stones and insults at me. But King David doesn't do that at all. He responds quite differently. Now, notice how he responds. He says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave, leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So at this point, David says, let him do it. And for the rest of the trip, all the way down to the Jordan, here's this guy throwing out insults, throwing stones the entire way down. The Bible says when they got there that they were exhausted. They arrived weary to the Jordan. And the Bible says, and there he refreshed himself. 
Now, I know you think this preaching is easy. What in the world does all that mean, right? Well, let me try to draw a couple careful principles from the text that I think might be helpful to us this morning. Number one, here it is, be sure that skeptics will always see your failures. Be sure that skeptics will always see your failures. David was well aware of his sin. We understand that. Because God wouldn't allow him to get away with his sin without bringing it to his attention. And the way he brought it to his attention was through the prophet Nathan. Remember, he comes with a story and he tells him, hey, there's this wicked rich man that abused this innocent poor man. And he goes, oh, by the way, you're the man. And we know that David recognized his sinfulness and understood the depth of his sin and his offense to God. Because we, we read about it in Psalm 51. This is David's response. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is a guy who's well aware of his sin. Anybody who walks with God, they are well aware of their sin for two reasons. One is because of the book, because of the word of God. The Bible is as a mirror to us, James says. It shows us where we are. It reveals to us where we are spiritually. When something is off, it tells us very clearly of the word, amen? Then we have the ministering work of the Holy Spirit in us who works along with the word of God who tells us, look, you are that man. You are that woman. You're that person, What's happening here? You too are guilty of what's happening. And so we are aware of our sin, but we ought to be. That's what it, it, it's not a bad thing. God brings that to our attention so that we don't continue to stray. It's actually an act of his grace and his mercy. But we have to be aware that we're not the only ones who are aware. That there are people around us, especially skeptics and even enemies of God and people who don't believe that are ultimately aware of your failures, your sins, and my failures, and my sins as well. They're always looking. Skeptics, they, they love to see God's people fail. They love to be able to watch it. Just look at Facebook. Look on the news. Every time another giant in the faith falls, they are so giddy. They can't help but to be able to sit back and yell, hey, hypocrite. Hey, we told you so. Hey, they're full of it. And they they love to be able to rejoice. They love to be able to see the failure of God's people. And so what I want you to understand, even here, as much as this guy is enjoying David's, David's failure, understand that you and I have a responsibility. You and I have a responsibility to God to be able to have an appropriate witness for a lost and dying world. Now, that's not what motivates us primarily. Our greatest motivation is not, hey, I want to do good things so that the world thinks I'm a pretty good guy. That's not the motivation. The ultimate motivation is that you and I want to worship God. We want to glorify God. And the way we do that is bending a knee unto God and saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. And so what happens is the Bible says when we do that, the world sees our good works and they praise our Father who is in heaven. But when we get it wrong, oftentimes it has the opposite effect. What does it do? A world looks at us and they say, hey, what he's living or how he's living is not matching up to what he's saying. And so this is a reminder for us very well is that it's not just our own relationship with God that is at stake in in coming and being obedient to him. Our very witness is at stake. Be assured that the skeptic will always see our failures. Number two, and this goes right along with it, not only will they see our failures, but notice this, be humble when someone calls you out. 
Be humble when someone calls you out. Let's be honest. As much as we want to follow Jesus, as much as we want to be obedient to him, as much as we want to do his will, and that's truly who we want to be, what we want to do, we don't always do it because we wrestle with the sinful flesh. Even the Apostle Paul says, sometimes I do what I'm, I don't want to do and I can't seem to do the things that I want to do. He wrestled with the flesh as well. And so when we find ourselves doing here and we're ultimately going to fall and we will fall in the eyes of the skeptics around us, what are we, what are we to do? Well, we are to make sure that we receive what it is that they say. We're to respond in the appropriate way. We're not to deny it. We're not to make excuses. We're not to retaliate. How easy is it to retaliate to people who point out our sins in our lives, right? This is natural, fleshly response. Somebody comes and they say something about you. What do you want to do? You want to immediately draw the attention away from ourselves, and so you begin to talk about how sinful they are. Can you imagine? David doesn't do that here. Do we see him do that? Uh, all of a sudden, the man comes up and says, bro, you're really, really sinful. He goes, oh, yeah? Well, your daddy. Oh, yeah? What about old Saul over there? He was so sinful that he not only had the throne taken away, but what ultimately happened is he took his very spirit away from Saul. Ha! Huh! And he draws it back to him. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He receives it. See, the key is, is it's, it, we understand as believers in Christ, at least we should, that as a family of brothers and sisters in Christ, a part of the same faith family, that you and I are to speak truth in each other's life. Would we agree about that? That we're to go to each other when there is particular sin in somebody's life, in my life, in your life. That we have brothers and sisters in Christ that come to us and say, Brother, I don't know if you see this or not. Man, I love you so much and I want to be careful because I struggle with the same sin. But I want you to be aware that this is dangerous, what's happening. And you begin to talk with them. And that's hard enough to accept, even from people who love you. It's a whole nother thing to have people who you know want to kill you or want, to, want, want you to fail who come and begin to point out you and my and, and, and our downfall. That's hard to be able to receive, but here's what I want you to understand. This is what David understood. It doesn't matter what source it's ultimately coming from. If it's true, it's of God. Whether it comes from your friends and your church family or whether it comes from an enemy and somebody, if they speak truth of sin inside of your life, it's still true. It's what David says. He says, why am I going to rebuke him? He goes, he might very well be from God. And then he identified, guess what? That he was in fact sent from God to expose him and his own sin. Do you know what one of the responsibilities for you and I are, and I just mentioned it a minute ago, is to be able to walk in obedience to God and have a good a testimony to a lost and dying world. But you know what else is our responsibility to a lost and dying world? To teach them very clearly how you and I are to respond to the sin in our own life. We, you, and I are to show people, show a lost world that we are not to get up when we're caught in our sin and make excuses and blame everybody else and tell us we're not really all that bad. The world needs to be able to see what it looks like for you and I to admit that we are sinners, to admit that we're wrong, to admit that we should receive the judgment of God and then demonstrate that that's the heart that ultimately receives the grace of God. The Bible says that God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. So a lost world will never know how to bend a knee before God and admit their faults if God's own people are unwilling to be able to do the same. There's a third thing we see in the text, and I'm going to go over this one very, very quickly. That is, be cautious in determining of why others suffer. The Bible gives us all kinds of reasons why they're suffering in this world. Sometimes we're suffering, just the, the point of this text is sometimes you suffer because of our own sin. Anybody ever suffer from their own sin? Yeah, kind of daily. I do daily, 
Every time I sin against my wife, she makes me suffer throughout the week. And no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. She's not here. She's out of town. That's why I'm so brave. And so, um, and so, so th- those things happen. And, and, and of course, sometimes we suffer because of the sin of other people. You didn't do anything wrong. But the suffering that you're experiencing and the difficulty that you're having is because of what somebody else has done. But you know what? Sometimes we suffer just because we're in a fallen world. It's not because of your direct consequence of your sin or the direct consequence of somebody else's sin. We just live in a marred and broken and fallen world where bad, terrible things happen to people simply because this world is ultimately broken. So we understand that. But here's the warning, and I'll say it just very quickly, and we'll move on to the last point, and that's this. The problem is, is most of the time, you, don't, you and I have no idea why somebody might be suffering. And we need to be very cautious in determining why that trouble is coming upon their life. Look, sometimes it's plain and clear. A person gets in a vehicle, they, they're drunk, and they get into a vehicle, and they drive drunk, and they wreck, and they take somebody's life, and they get thrown in jail because of it. It's pretty clear that, guess what? Hey, you know what's happening is a consequence, and the suffering you're experiencing is from your own sin. But most of the time, you know what I've learned? You can't really tell why somebody is ultimately suffering. You can't understand why they're doing it, why they're going through, and we need to be very careful not to jump and be presumptuous and to think, oh, it must be sin in their life. But let me encourage you one more thing. You need to be careful with your own life as well. You need to be careful. You know, some of you are, some of you, it's interesting, and this is in everybody, every church. There are sometimes you will preach and preach and preach and preach, and little folks will sit in the, in, the, in the congregation, and they'll leave, and you'll preach on sin, and they'll be there for a whole year, and they'll walk out, and they're like, you know, one day you're going to preach a message that has something to do with me. And you're sitting there going, nothing has to do with you, and they don't see any sin in their own life. You know, the rest of you are completely different. It doesn't matter what I say. If I sit there and go, you know, we ought not to steal, all of your sudden you say, oh, did, I, did I steal that piece of paper from my work the other day? And you are incredibly ultra-sensitive to all of your sin. And, and, and some of you are the same exact way. I don't want you to be in bondage to feeling every time something bad happens to you that you think it's a direct correlation to your sin before God. That you think that God is after you, you've done something. So what are we to do? Well, we are to be very gracious to other people and not to assume. But we need to be gracious to ourselves, but we also need to seek God in his will. This is a great prayer that David, that David uh, prays. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way understanding. God, if I'm suffering because of my own sin, show me, show me. God, if, I, if this is just from something else, then show me that and assure me once again that I'm walking in faithfulness to you. And he will. Here's a fourth point, very quickly. Fourth point. Be hopeful of the grace that God might show. Be hopeful for the grace that God might show. You know, there's always a verse in almost every one of these texts that I always read it, and I'm like, I'm not really sure what that means. Well, there's one in this text as well. And what I have found through studying the Word and preaching the Word for whatever 20 years or whatever it is, it's usually that's the point of the text. It's whatever verse. I'm not quite sure what it means. That's usually the text. That's how it happens here in verse 12. Read that with me, if you will. David said, It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. David says, you know, I was judged by God, and God placed a curse on me. We read about that curse in in chapter 12, and now he gets all excited because God's cursed him. It was the last time you got excited about a curse of God, right? And now he's thinking that there's actually hope. You say, well, you know, you've been judged, and you've been cursed, David. And he goes, oh, so you're saying 
there could be something good coming out of this. This is very strange language. That, that, that God was right. David understood that God was right in what he did. But strangely enough, David finds hope in it. Somewhere, somehow, listen to this. David had come to see God as a God who replaces curses with blessings. That God is a God who replaces curses with blessings. Again, though he was right to be able to judge him, though he's right to be able to punish him, he viewed this as an opportunity to show just how gracious he was. Now, he's not sure that God is going to take away these consequences. That's why he said, he may, it may. God, God may choose in the midst of all this to take these consequences at all uh, uh, away. He's not for sure. What we know about David is whether God takes away the consequences of his sin or not, he's still going to be obedient to do what God calls him to do. But yet at the same time, he sits back and he says, there's a possibility that even though I'm wrong and even though I'm experiencing the consequences, God is so incredibly good that even though I'm deserving it of all of it, he may actually even take away those consequences from me. I think this is an important point. Dale Ralph Davis, who has really helped me with this particular study in the book of 2 Samuel, wrote these words. He says, these should be encouraging words to us. Should this word not come as a special hope to Christians who believe that they've made a royal curse job of their lives? Christians who at some point, sometimes uh, with open eyes, have smashed God's commandments and, and defied his standards and then suffered miserably for it. Repentance and forgiveness have come, yet they are sure that God only regards them with grudging toleration. And sometimes they doubt that toleration. They are, or say that they are, they, they think doomed, they, they are, they think doomed to a junkyard of Christian existence. But what if they get a glimpse of David's God? What if they can say, it may be of him? What if they have a God who can look at guilt and return good? Now, I don't know where David picked this up, but I know where we came to believe in this type of God. The Bible teaches us in Galatians chapter 3 and verses 13 through 14, it says this. And it teaches us that God takes the curses and he turns them into the blessings. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The way we know that God judges and then curses and then is so gracious that he takes the curse and he turns it into blessing is because that's what happens to every one of us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us is deserving of the curse of death. But God, by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, does what? He reverses the curse for you and I and gives us eternal life. If that's what he does for our eternity, don't you think he's gracious enough to do that in the life here and now? David believed he was. Do you believe that he was? So here's what we want to do. We just want to look at a couple things. I don't know why we're, we're focusing on this right before the Lord's Supper, but it's the next passage of Scripture that has come up. Three, four things I want you to think on. First of all, let us think of our witness. Just for a moment, think of our witness. Think for a moment about where you go, what you do, how you behave in your home, in your workplace, Think very closely about what you, you tell the world on Facebook and social media. What is coming across in your witness? 
Are you demonstrating that you are fully subservient to the person of God? Or is the message that the Word is hearing, is that message different than the one that you keep preaching? So we want to be able to make sure that we understand that the world around us is looking, and we need to take that seriously. Number two, let us think of our response when others point out our sin. Let us be teachable. Let us sit back and instead of rejecting everything that somebody has to say, let you and I come to the point where we humble ourselves before God and say, God, if this be of you, use it in my life. Number four, let us be careful to determine the suffering of other people. Let us not speak quickly of why wrong and difficulty is happening in other people's life. And you may not even say it out loud, but it certainly could be the process within our minds. Let us be very careful knowing that we're not God and we don't know why the suffering has come. And finally, let us be cautiously optimistic that God will take away the consequences of the sin that we do deserve. Again, he may not take away all the consequences. David recognized that. We may experience some consequences for the rest of our life. But there is a demonstration of God over and over and over again throughout the Word of God, including on the cross, that demonstrates He's so good that He even takes our consequences and turns them into blessings. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You and I praise You for today. I thank You for the time that we've had in Your Word. God, continue to speak to us right now as we respond. God, I pray that we'll just take a moment, Lord, and allow the Spirit to speak. Allow us to respond to make sure our hearts are right before we take uh, the Lord's Supper together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? We're going to respond very quickly. I'm, I'm down here if you want to pray, if you want to come to the altar and pray. If you want to know more about Christ, I want to share you and uh, teach more of the gospel to you this morning. But you respond right now as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. All right? Seated. I'm going to ask our ushers to come at this time, if they would, and uh, to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. This won't take long, but for our church, it's, a, it's an important thing. You don't have to be a member of Mercy Hill to take it to the Lord's Supper, uh, but you do need to be a part of God's universal church. That is that you've repented of your sin, you've placed your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ and grace through faith alone. 
And so we want to invite you to be able to do that. Of course, there might be some children, so parents, we're going to make sure that you make that decision for your children. If they've uh, come to faith in Christ, we'll leave that up to you. But we do come to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper given to us to celebrate in memory of his broken body and his shed blood. It is said that on that night before he was betrayed, at the conclusion of the feast of the Passover, which he and his disciples were celebrating, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God. We thank you that, that your body was broken for us. It wasn't broken for you. It wasn't broken because of your sin. God, we were the one who deserved, Lord, the beating, but yet you took it for us as a wonderful, brilliant substitute. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Gentlemen. Fifty-eight says, "This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as our fathers ate and died. He that eats this bread will live forever." Let's go ahead and take. Mm -hmm. 
And on the same night, our Lord, our Lord took the cup, and having blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my blood, which was shed for you. Let's pray again. Jesus, we do love you. We thank you so much for allowing your blood to be shed for us. God, we will never get over that reality. We never want to get over that reality. We thank you that your blood was sufficient for everyone who would repent and call out to you. We love you and glorify you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, I may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Go ahead and take. 
And for as often as you eat this bread, this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hey, I want to thank you so much. You get extra brownie points for coming on Memorial Day weekend.